Hey, Chris. Hey, Kara. How are you doing? I am great. You are great. I feel like that's the most sarcastic great I have heard. Oh, life it is maybe good. the last two hours. You know, we fill our lives with all these things that we wanted to do with our lives. They just can be a little tiring. That's all. A little. Just a little. A little. Today, you have me at quite the disadvantage since the guest is actually with you all at Alabama giving a talk and meeting with everybody. Yeah, so today's guest is Dr. Patricia Wright. She is a professor of anthropology at SUNY Stony Brook. She's worked all over the world. She has taught at Duke. She's currently teaching at Stony Brook. She's worked in South America. Uh, I was just going through your, your bio Borneo, many other places, uh, currently has a major site for the last 30 years in Madagascar, and lots of words that I'm going to add back into this podcast later to do a proper introduction. I'm doing fine. It's my first time to Alabama, so it's all brand new to me. It's a beautiful state. Lots the trees and I hear it's the most biodiverse state in all of the union so I'm, I'm looking huh. forward to coming back when I can go out in the forest and see some of your biodiversity. I did, did not go? know that. That's great. It's our that's yeah. it's, it's on our um, our state website. I was going to say is it the state motto we are the most biodiverse. <laughs> so I'm not sure if we're number one anymore or we ever were, but we're definitely in the top few states. And this came up in the Evolution for Everyone class that I teach, which Pat was kind enough to sit in on this morning. And many of our students who now, as you may have noticed, Pat, are largely from outside of Alabama. So the fact that that they were aware of that Mm -hmm. uh, impressed me. But that is one of the, the mentions that they had. I know you have been talking a lot today, and you were really, really kind to my students by giving us your origin story. And it's a really, really, really fascinating story. And I'm not going to ask you to go back through the whole story, but I am going to tell our listeners that they can read it. In you have two books. One is High Moon Over the Amazon, My Quest to Understand the Monkeys of the Night which details much of the story you told us this morning, I suspect. Yes, it does. And your other book is For the Love of Lemurs, My Life in the Wilds of Madagascar. So if you don't mind, I want to summarize really quickly for Kara and our listeners some of what you told, and then you can... You can jump in with some of the highlights that I missed, and then I'd like to hear where that story continued. So Pat started off as an undergrad studying biology, but there wasn't a lot of work after she graduated, and she ended up becoming a social worker, and she got married, and I'm not going to do it justice because it was such a good story. But some of the highlights for me was they were hanging out, going to rock shows at the Fillmore East in the East Village of New York. So this is the 60s. This is the height of the Fillmore East. But suffice it to say, she saw everybody who was anybody, late 60s. Pet store across the street from the Fillmore East had an owl monkey for sale that she bought and that was her pet in her apartment. But it's a, it's a primate. So when they would go to these shows, Owl Monkey 
like any smart animal, got pissed off because it was being left alone and wrecked their house. So she wanted to get a mate for the owl monkey and basically went to Columbia and found one of these really sketchy animal dealers. (laughs) This was late 60s, early 70s, remember, and got a mate for her owl monkey and they ended up breeding. They had babies. So she was basically observing owl monkey mating and behavior in her apartment and wanted to know and saw the paternal care that her male owl monkey demonstrated and realized there was nothing in the literature about the evolution of paternal care in primates. She was a social worker, but also... Yeah, I have a question about that. Because you were a social worker, what, where did the familiarity with paternal care come from to know that it wasn't in the literature from primates? Well, see, on the side, I was going to the New York Public Library, which in those days, you know, we didn't have internet, and there wasn't a lot of ways that if you were not in the academic system that you could actually find literature. So, you know, as far as I knew from anything that I'd ever, and I watched TV, I knew about Jane Goodall. I knew about uh, also the baboons because there was a there was a book, The Territorial Imperative came out and that was about, uh, it's a popular book about baboon behavior basically. And, and, and there were other books too. And so there, there was a, you know, it was kind of known in the popular press that females took care of the babies and, mm-hmm. and everything and males just strutted around and, and attacked other males. So it was, <laughs> it was a total surprise for me. And I realized, cause it was, this was, you know, by this time it was close to the seventies, was the beginning of the seventies. And, you know, we were just starting this kind of sexual revolution mm-hmm. where girls didn't have to stay home and watch the households anymore. And I thought that this was a very important find a thing to discover why this extreme form of paternal care had evolved in a tiny little monkey in the Amazon. Hmm. It was, you know, the the father did everything. I mean, the mother gave milk because they're mammals, but the father played with the offspring, fed him new food, you know, taught him which foods to eat and carried him on his back um, throughout the whole time that the infant is baby and through the juvenile period, very close to the father. So that's, that, that was what I thought was important for us all to know how that happened and why that happened and that it did happen in our primate cousins was especially important in those days. It was partially because I, too, was a mother mm-hmm. and I was doing all the care because males in those days didn't do uh, very much care at all. They didn't. They went to, off to work and they left the wife with the kids. Mm-hmm. Her daughter and the owl monkey baby were born at the same time. two weeks apart apart. yeah (laughs) my daughter was born first the monkey daughter was born two weeks later and that's that's amazing in itself because we had no idea that the monkeys were uh, pregnant so that started a a question and that led to my phd and then from my phd onward so i finally got out of the amazon rainforest with all these data about the world's only nocturnal monkey and about male parental care and about the natural forces that supported that this one kind of monkey was was nocturnal. That in itself is pretty strange. There aren't any other nocturnal monkeys anywhere in the world except for this this uh, group. 
And so I got back and it was snowing. I remember I was near Buffalo and it was snowing. It was snowing a lot. And I had just been the Amazon for two years. And then suddenly I got a, a telephone call that surprised me because it was the director of the Duke University Primate Center. And he was basically called to offer me a job. Hmm. He said that he had an NSF grant and that uh, he to study tarsiers. And he had sent five men to Borneo. And Borneo, you know, it's a long way away. And I'd always uh, read about Borneo and never been there. He said he'd sent five men to Borneo to bring back tarsiers. Nobody had even brought back one. He was supposed to bring back 12, according to his NSF grant. He heard that I would be able to do that for him. Hmm. And so the rumor was out that I traveled with uh, all monkeys of nocturnal primates and that I, I actually did some amazing things. So, so he was offering me a job and I went to my, to my thesis advisor and I said, I haven't even started writing. I haven't even started analyzing the data. And he said, Duke is a really good place. Well, you should get that job. <laughs> and so um, I did. I was in Borneo within three months. I brought back 12 tars here. <laughs> then he said, go back. We want another species. <laughs> then I went to the Philippines, brought back another 12. And so then he had enough so that, you know, I could study uh, these animals and look at their behavior. I eventually did get my dissertation done. Probably <laughs> 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 a couple years later than I would have, but I got it. And so then he called me into his office. And this, I'm going to tell the story tonight. And then he said, this painting on the wall, this was done a long time ago in the 1800s and it's a it's a bamboo lemur and we think it's extinct on Madagascar but we don't know for sure could you go back over there go to Madagascar and uh and tell us whether this animal is extinct and I, I you know what could I say so I'd never been to Madagascar I thought okay I didn't know anything about it until I got there because they didn't give me a lot of detail. I get there and there's, you know, everybody's walking. There were no roads. It was really very different in Madagascar than I see today. And uh, so we ended up getting a car over there and eventually, and not only found that species, but also found a new species to science, the golden bamboo lemur. Hmm. And just as we saw that, found that, and I was busily doing my research, on the comparisons of them and the other lemurs in that forest, the timber exporters came in and started to chop down the forest. So I cried a little bit and I yelled at a few people that were carrying the wood and then finally I realized that was futile and so I went to the Capitol and talked to the ministry. And then he said, well, Mrs. Wright, I think you're right that, you know, these new species that we've just discovered and this beautiful forest is worth protecting. But we don't have any money. We're in Madagascar. We do not have any money for making the maps, for doing the boundaries, for training the people to protect it, to doing the infrastructure. So instead, uh, instead, why don't you find the money? And then we'll be very happy to help you make that forest a national park. I was an assistant professor. And when he said that, I just, my mouth fell open. He directed me outside of his office and said, we'll be glad to help and slam the door. And I thought, oh my God, what do I do? I mean, for me to be raising you know, millions and millions of dollars, you know, I'm just an assistant professor. I mean, that's, that's how it seemed impossible. And making a national park. I mean, I had no training in making a national park in graduate school. And then I thought, Oh no, I'll never get tenure <laughs> if I start doing things like that. And then I realized that if I didn't do this, 
that my species that I had just discovered was going to go extinct and I couldn't live with myself if that happened. So I made a decision right there that I was going to have to, I was going to have to protect that forest. And so I spent the next, between that was 1986 until we actually received $4 million from USAID in 1990. And uh, that was to do the structure of the park. But during the time that, during all that time, I was visiting villages around the park to ask them about uh, the kind of assistance that they needed. Right. And I knew nothing about development. I was really, truly asking them, what should we we do? And so it was never a top-down thing. It was like, I have a problem and you have a, you know, let's work together and let's make this happen to the advantage of everybody. And, um, and now I can say 30 years later that this kind of integrated approach to conservation, which was not done at that time, but working uh, with the villagers uh, for helping their, with their health care, helping with their schooling, helping with their economic improvement, all of those things, working together as partners rather than top-down, and, uh, and working together with teaching them the value of their extraordinary biodiversity is so rather a success story. But I had no idea at any of these stages that it was really going to work. I was always worried and always getting more money to make things happen. And uh, eventually, um, it was uh, in 1991, it became a national park. In 2007, it became a World Heritage Site. We have 137 staff that work for the research team full-time with benefits. Then there's another 100 uh, tourism guides who make more money than my people. They don't get health benefits. And then uh, we also have the National Park Service itself, which is another hundred people. But then for the tourism industry, we have used to have one hotel in town. Now we've got 38, and then that's uh, you know that brings in income for handicrafts and everything. So the this little poverty-stricken place is a much more it's much more prosperous, and everybody's protecting the lemurs. Now, I'm not saying that this works everywhere in Madagascar, but it's worked pretty well in our, our place. Yeah, it was it was striking when I visited in March 2017. It was like entering in sort of an idyllic community because the contrast between Antananarivo and the rest and the whole way down there and Ranamafana was dramatic. And obviously we hadn't met and I had no preconceptions of what to expect. I wasn't familiar with Ranamafana until some of my primatology colleagues, knowing I was going to Madagascar, suggested I go. And uh, Josia Razafindramanana, who I was working with, set up the trip for me. And walking into the village of Ranamafana, I think one of the first places I visited was a, a silk co-op where they were doing silk handicrafts and they were telling me about the relationship between the village and the community and the park. And I was really blown away. And then when I saw the research facilities, <laughs> it was the only place in all of Madagascar I found was really dependable internet. So <laughs> folks would <laughs> spend a lot of time there. It's truly, in my own opinion, you know, which is admittedly limited, a world-class facility. And, and so I wonder what the reception 
beyond the local has been for that? It's been interesting. The national government looks at it as their crown jewel, and that's really nice. And the Minister of the Environment came and gave us a speech when it was like the 25th anniversary of the park. He gave us a speech and said, I just wish we could uh, copy this model and have six more of these. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's really nice of him. Yeah. With television cameras, you know, rolling and everything happening. So it made, it made me very happy to see that the, the government itself was acknowledging this. And of course, the world is acknowledging it too. We're now having, we had the International Primatological Society uh, group come. We had the International Lepidopterist, uh, actually it's the African Lepidopterist Society came last year in April. And um as we began this year, the American, uh, the Association for Tropical Biology and Conservation is sending some of their delegates down to our research station. So it's very nice that we're getting the kind of recognition we're building and we're constructing a museum and we're going to have collections of insects and, and plants. And so uh, soon we'll be, our, our building will be filled with Cornell cabinets for the insects and, and we'll have a beautiful herbarium. And it'll be a great place for people from all over the world to come to look at Madagascar's biodiversity and, and for the universities in Madagascar to be very, very proud of because we're yeah. in affiliation with the University of Piatransu and uh, and Tananarivo. I had a lot of conversations with the University of Tananarivo about the needs that they have. And one of the, the reasons that I was there was because I have a winter grin to do a cultural exchange with an outreach program we have here in Tuscaloosa with a Montessori elementary slash middle. I mean, they're doing basically six years old through 18 year old education there in Tana and have so few resources. They were taking anyone with a bachelor's degree from anywhere in the world to come in and teach. And I saw similar to what your explanation for why you decided I needed to do this, regardless of my tenure prospects, because it's the right thing to do. I saw the resources that we have relative to what they have behooves us, behooves me to try to help because we have so much. And the outreach programs that Center of Al Bio is doing were really impressive to me too. It seems like there's just really, really well-developed programs that you guys are implementing. And I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit, and I'll, I'll interrupt this really quickly to say, Kara texted me, her internet just totally dropped out. So she wanted to apologize. So I say us with finger quotes, but she'll listen to this. If you could tell us more about those education programs that you you guys have going on there and how they developed and, and what you're doing. Yes, our education developed a little bit at a time. We started out with building schools um, because that's what they said that they needed. And then they said, oh, now I got a school. We don't have any teachers. <laughs> and so then we went, I went to the minister of uh, education and said, send your best teachers down to Ranmapan, which was good because I had enough influence to do that. Mm. And that was, you know, we're talking the 90s and the, and the, just the beginning of the, of the 2000s. And then I realized that our schools were all on, and our first schools were all on the road. And we had our programs all on the road. And we did conservation education kind of programs. So we needed off-road school, schooling. Because there's so, one road, right? 
basically. Yeah, it's one road. And, you know, most of the metal guys, they can walk everywhere. So you can walk two days on either side of that road, and you'll have schools, and they're not getting very good education. So I got a granting from the Three Graces Foundation to start with fourth and fifth graders and to do uh, participatory science, to do critical thinking. This is like unknown and unheard of in Madagascar because everybody just, the teacher goes up and writes on the board, everybody writes in their little notebooks, whatever the teacher writes. But this was a whole different thing where you're actually doing things, participating. And, you know, doing things like counting how much firewood that your parents uh, use and figuring out how many trees that that would take if you continue to eat rice for a year. Like doing things like, well, planting gardens and and planting trees, endemic species of trees, and measuring how much they grow. And actually having some of those uh, seedlings get lots of water and others get a little bit of water, some get more sun, others get more shade. So they begin to see uh, that it makes a difference if you water something or not. Um, and this is like revolutionary for kids. And, and kids going out in their backyard and seeing that there's little tiny mouse lemurs there and actually following those little lemurs that can fit in the palm of your hand and just see what they're eating and to just get interested in, and listen to the bird calls or record them and then call them, you know, play them back and listen. And it's, uh, you know, we started getting the kids really into science. And then we took them on trips into the forest. And there's nothing better than going into a forest for all of us. And just, just experience the calm and the beauty and the sounds and the smells. And that's what's going to get somebody to value their resources more than anything. And a lot of kids don't go to school. So in addition to the school programs, we also have conservation clubs. Conservation clubs, you can be 30 and still come to a conservation club, but mostly it's teenagers. And they do things, again, like a lot of tree planting and, and a lot, lot of uh, the kind of community projects to clean things up and recycling and, and uh, fresh water kinds of projects. Those are important projects for them. So get them involved. Get them to value their natural resources. So that's the kind of education that we, we try to do. But the health team is also very important because people are sick there. Um, you know, one, uh, each person has three or four different kinds of parasites and different sicknesses. So we started out with a health team very early on. And now we have one medical doctor and uh, three nurses and a social worker uh, that go out to the remote villages, you know, and you have to walk two days. And they bring a tent. They bring this huge tent. And they set it up as a doctor's office. And then everybody comes in. They make a line and people come in one at a time. They have the privacy. Bring in all the medications. It's hilarious to see there's a whole line of people carrying medications on their head and boxes, in Tupperware boxes. And, uh, and the medical doctor, you know, can cure whatever else you. And they, and they uh, do that. They're out uh, in the field almost more than half their time. Hmm. Uh, and that's that's something that uh, people can count on and it's really saved a lot of lives, but also builds us the trust that yeah. we need from the villages. So that's important. And then we try to touch their heart because I think, you know, all the preaching about the value of biodiversity, all the preaching about don't cut down the forest don't really do much good. But if you convince people and they believe it in their hearts, that's really different. And how do you do that? Well, mostly like you do it here, through music, through dance, 
through you know plays and and so we have we have special environmental bands we have a contest we have a festival music <laughs> festival we bring all the bands together and then we have first second and third prize every year and when they you know whenever you have music you got people coming so a lot of people will come to hear the music the local people do the music wow. and then um sometimes we bring down pop stars from tana uh, because we got those two, and then that adds a different kind of prestige to the festival. But I think environmental arts, you know, teaching kids that they can draw what they see, and that they, you know, we bring materials and everything. I think that's also an important part of it. But the most important part, of course, is bringing kids into the forest and getting them to love nature. I'm really impressed hearing your story earlier. You basically followed your own interests despite or before you had graduate training, you were interested in primates, you were interested in animals, you went out and found funding and figured out how to do it on your own, you know, using your your wits. And it sounds like this is the kind of critical thinking you're instilling in these kids and in this community, right? Like really connecting them to what they see around them. And I wonder who modeled this behavior for you? Where did you find this in yourself? Well, first of all, I think it, it was partially my, my dad, who was a Canadian, and he was a hunter and a fisherman, and took me on expeditions to the wilderness of Canada, even when I was like five. So I, you know, I had that background. And then pretty soon I learned how to read. And that's what I learned about the tropics. And I read Gerald Durrell and Ivan Sanderson and all these people that, that brought the rainforest to me. And so I never thought I'd ever be able to go to those places. But just to read about the incredible tropical animals and all that they do, that's just, you know, that was what I did when I was 12 and 13. And then finally I had this incredible opportunity. And when I went to university, I majored in biology. But there was no tropical biology. If there was tropical biology, I didn't hear about it. And so that's why it took me a kind of circuitous route. But now kids can just go on my study abroad and they can go to Madagascar. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a lot easier nowadays. Well, it is, but I, I really, I won't belabor the point, but I just, I love your narrative of so-and-so said I couldn't do it for this, that, or the other reason. And you were just like, you know, I'm just going to do it anyway, or I'm just going to figure out a way to do it. Because it's been something I try to instill in students as well. That we hear quite often, like, someone told me I couldn't do it or it'd be near impossible. So you kind of said, screw them. <laughs> I'm going to try anyway. Yeah. It's not easy. You know, you really have to meet that challenge and you're going to be, um, it's going to be beaten back in many, many different ways. You know, it's like, it's, it's, I don't think people can really appreciate how many uh, blockages that could be thrown in your path. Part of my success was I would stop and think, okay, uh, we're going to get around this boulder. <laughs> got to get it, got to get on the other side some other way, I guess. And I think uh, sometimes students seem to think that things are impossible and not be willing to say, well, maybe they're impossible for some people, but not for me. Just to reiterate, you went and studied a nocturnal monkey before you ever even had any graduate training when you were told that no one could actually find a nocturnal monkey in the dark. None of the experts could. You went to Borneo and found tarsiers when the so-called experts ahead of you could not go and find any and bring them back. 
and you went to Madagascar and found a monkey, a lemur thought extinct, found another one people didn't know about, and started a national park in a developing country with no resources. <laughs> oh, that is a but tall I, order. Did I, I recently, miss anything? Well, recently. Recently, I just found a lost rainforest. Which you're going to be telling us about tonight. I do I have one question. What ended up happening to the owl monkeys that you had at home? What's their end story? Okay. So, you know, I got a MacArthur Genius Award, and that was pretty wonderful. And I built them a palace in my backyard. I was in North Carolina. And so it was like, you know, they could be outside. So I had this huge cage, you know, trees inside it and everything. And they had a really nice life. And then uh, when I came to New York, you know, the weather's a little bit different in New York. And I couldn't really have a kind of house, a small house, but it was like very open and modern kind of house. So I got some uh, of my friends who lived in Santa Barbara to take my monkeys for me. And now, of course, it's many, many years later and the original monkeys have gone. Mm. And uh, even their children are getting, uh, I, I think most of them are gone too. So we're on our third generation. I miss them every day. And it's, it's hard to live without animals, but I do so much traveling. I'm in Madagascar more than half the time. So I wow. have to, I'm very happy to have uh, my animals be in the wild. And by the way, I should say, please, that people should not buy pet monkeys mm. because, you know, they're really not really very good pets. And uh, it's really cruel and it encourages people to, to extract them from the wild. Yeah. And I found that out the hard way by going to the Amazon and seeing the, uh, the beginning of the pet trade. So I, I'm totally against that for anybody now. I want to ask a follow-up to the status of the lemurs in Ranamafana. So 2013 chapter that you wrote in for Primate Tourism, a tool for conservation, you questioned the impact that tourism was having on the well-beings of the lemurs. There were some charts showing that the, the group sizes were dropping as the number of tourists coming to the park increased year by year. And I wonder what the status of them is now. Do you still see that trend? Well, it was very interesting because that was the data that we were taking, let's say, from 2009, 10, 11. And we did see that dip. But what's happened since that time is very interesting. The Shafakas have returned pretty much to what they were before that time. And uh, the golden bamboo lemurs have tripled their population density. They've just hmm. taken off. And that's really great. The brown lemurs and the red-bellied lemurs are pretty much maintaining their population. So there is a difference in... Some species are doing better than others, but that incredible dip that we did have in almost all the species in uh, 2008, 9, 10, 11, they have recuperated. Those animals are resilient and they can, can, can come back if you protect the habitat. Sure. And that's the whole thing. You know, lemurs and most animals are resilient. They have uh, the habitat to live in and the food that they need to grow and reproduce. So I think that um, part the of the reason part of the reason why they have recuperated is because of the management of the tourism. We discussed these findings with the National Park and the National Park started to limit the number of tourists that could watch the lemurs. Mm. So it's not perfect. There are some months like October when there's a tremendous amount of tourists. But most of the time we have a limited number of tourists underneath the animals and so that's also a change so when we're talking about tourism 
as the silver bullet, so to speak, manage tourism. Mm. Might be a, tour, a silver bullet. I mean, you know that if you go see gorillas, it's $1,500 for one hour with the gorillas, the mountain gorillas. That's a lot of money and people are paying it in there and you have to reserve a year in advance. Mm. To like broaden out and you've touched on it now just a bit, given your wide ranging experience and of course, investment in conservation kind of what is your outlook on primate conservation and from the lessons you learned what might be able to be applied more broadly across the planet for primates oh yes we've learned a lot we made a lot of mistakes we don't talk about those so much but <laughs> we, we know that we've made a lot of mistakes and one of the most important things i think is to is to involve the local communities no matter where you are and I think we biologists in general have done a really poor job of marketing, mm. of, of really showing how extraordinary the wildlife on this planet is, how interesting it is, and so that people aren't just going to the cultural capitals, aren't just going to the Sistine Chapel or the Tower of London, but that they're, they're also uh, valuing. Uh, the wildlife in, in the natural parks as much as they do the more cultural things that they target, tourism focus and targets. I think that's important. I think it's important to involve everybody in nature, get them outside and get them outside seeing these little bugs and things. So I think if the more scientists that will give outreach to the public, the better. I think we have to concentrate on marketing online better. I would like to turn on my television and have have uh, you know the news of the uh, nature news that where you really hear about what's going on with all of us scientists? I mean, we're discovering new species every day. I mean, we're doing extraordinary things. Nobody, all we hear about is the wars and people to people kind of uh, news. Let's hear about wildlife and people together. So I think uh, marketing is important. I think it's important to involve communities, involve as many people, so that they feel that they're part of it. I'd like to take the model of doing, you know, health education, outreach, everything together with the wildlife. But the one thing that I really believe is science has to be the center. That you really have to have rigorous science gets you the right answers. It's just fine to publicize that science, but you have to be sure that we still have those scientists to getting, getting the facts straight. So I... I optimistic that we're heading in the right direction. I think uh, we have the Al in Stony Brook, we have the Allen mm -hmm. Alder Center, and it actually teaches scientists to communicate science better. And I was uh, a student of one of those workshops and met him. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, congratulations. And all my students have to attend them too. And so I think we're seeing a trend that's getting, it's getting better. We need, of course, to amplify what we're doing now mm -hmm. to make a better world. Um, the problems that we're having with the world changing due to anthro, what do they call it, the Anthropocene, that with the, all humans really changing the planet. We have to counter that with some resiliency. We have to plant trees, build forests back again. Not just say, oh my goodness, we're losing all those forests, but go out there and take those forests back, plant trees, plant endemic species, mm. and encourage the biodiversity to return to them. Madagascar is on the brink of extinction, but every place on this planet is going to be on the brink of extinction soon. 
So we need to use uh, Madagascar as an example. If we don't say what's going on in Madagascar, all of that incredible biodiversity is going to be gone, and it's going to be gone pretty quick. Mm. I feel very strongly about that we don't have time to just twiddle our thumbs, as they say. We have to be activists. Are you hopeful? Yeah, sure. I am an optimist, and I work very hard every day because I believe that we can do that. But we need more than me and more than just me and my students. Everybody has to take action. Hmm. Maybe it'll be little things, but, you know, I think it should be big things. I think we should have, like, a Peace Corps, but it should be a Planet Corps hmm. where we can really get out there and repair our planet. Get those mm. that next generation repairing our planet. That's, That's what we great. need. Great idea. You sound like you're all work and no play, but I hear you just got married. Yes, I did. So congr- congrats. Congratulations. Marry a primatologist, though. Well, we always ask our guests how folks maintain balance in their life. So do you have hobbies or watch television, read books, listen to music? What do you do to give yourself balance? Well, you know, there's a lot of plane trips in my life. (laughs) So that's when I get a chance to, um, you know, read books and and see films. I love films. And, you know, we went in in Island of Lemurs, Madagascar, actually making a film and actually Mm. walking down the red carpet with Morgan Freeman. That was fun, actually. That's cool. Spending days with uh, Anthony Bourdain. That was fun. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and music. Music is still one of my passions. Still going to rock shows? Yeah, sure. <laughs> They're too big now. You know, you got to <laughs> ones. You know, so there's a lot of things that I, I really like to do. I do, my daughter grew up and is doing well. And I have grandchildren to spend time with. Mm. So I really enjoy like taking them on trips to show them uh, monkeys and lemurs and uh, wild places all over the world. Well, that's great. If people want to learn more about you or get in touch via social media, uh, what's the best way to do that? Okay, so I think our website is centervalbio.org and centervalbio is the name of our research station. We're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, etc. So it's pretty much Central Valbio. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show. I'm looking forward to the talk tonight. Thank you so much, Pat. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been the Sausage of Science. It has been the Sausage of Science. Chris, how can people get a hold of you on Twitter? I'm Chris, one of your co-hosts, and I'm at Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter. Uh, and I'm Kara. I guess I should say the other co-host. If you don't know that by now. You haven't been listening at all. Uh, And I'm at Kara Akabak on Twitter. And we are affiliated with the Human Biology Association. And this will be edited um, and sound glorious by Caroline Owens. And make sure that you rate us on whatever podcast streaming service you use and share us with all of your friends and family. All of those things. Thanks for listening, all. 